So uh, my name is Anna Marhold. I'm currently an assistant professor in energy markets regulation at the Tilburg University Center for Law and Economics in the Netherlands. Um, I have also recently defended my PhD here at the European University Institute in law, um, more specifically in international economic law, international trade law. And my thesis uh, was tr treating the um, regulation of energy trade um, from GATT, from the e early years of the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade, to TTIP negotiations today. And it was trying to see what kind of um, evolution we see in the treatment of energy. And actually, what's interesting is that there has been no comprehensive st study at all studying energy and international trade law, um, but becoming an increasingly important topic in international trade. For instance, we see an increasing amount of disputes on energy-related topics in the WTO. Um, and nobody has really looked into this. So this was really one of the reasons that I um, felt the need to um, write a comprehensive book on this issue. Um, I will talk a little bit about the rationale of the thesis and uh, give you some chapter highlights and also some conclusions and ways forward. Now, as I said, there was no comprehensive study. And I think this is lacking, especially if you look at the history of the GATT uh, in 1947, the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade. It was actually long presumed that energy was excluded from the purview of the GATT altogether. And um, the reason for this was that you had the seven sister oil uh, companies basically trading through vertically integrated uh, private means, and they were not really taking into account the international public regulation of trade. So for a very long time, and even until today, if you talked about to people from the WTO and from the GATT, um, they would say, well, energy is not relevant at all for the, for the forum. We, it's, we don't, the, the rules don't apply. But this was wrong. And if you look back into the early days of 1947, you actually see that um, import and export tariffs on petroleum were already negotiated back then. It was just not de facto relevant. But that changed uh, during the 1970s oil crisis, and people really, countries started to realize how bargaining power can really influence um, trade in energy, largely to the interest of um, the energy exporting countries. So this was one of the reasons that you had a turning point in the International Multilateral Trading Forum, um, and countries realized that trade in energy was actually very important, and it had to be dealt with. And today, we really have seen an evolution where energy is fully included in the WTO. And the reasons for that are that there's a growing number of energy producing and exporting countries acceding to the organization, especially after its establishment in 1995. And also that we see an evolution in what energy trade is. So in the last decades, this was, of course, always fossil fuels, petroleum, gas. Now we're trading renewables. Um, and this really, it's not only fossil fuel based and it, it changes the type of energy trade and it changes the disputes. And all these factors combined really make um, show as a result that there are many disputes on energy now in the WTO. You had a Canada renewable energy dispute and now more importantly you have a, a Russia EU third energy package case in the WTO. And what is interesting is that uh, although the rules of the WTO do apply fully to energy trade, they really haven't been drafted with energy in mind. And this makes it very complicated for these rules to sufficiently apply to energy trade. 
So you do see that there is, for instance, um, the, the, the WTO legal system is divided in uh, tr regulating trade in goods and services. But in the energy sector, it's not always very clear cut what an energy good or what an energy service is. So what agreement applies then? And then, for instance, um, you cannot discriminate um, against like products in WTO law. But what are like energy products? Is, for instance, electricity generated by renewable means the same or like electricity generated by coal? There's no clear-cut answer to this at all. And then you have, for instance, freedom of transit in WTO law under the GATT. Does transit, Article 5 on transit in WTO, does it cover pipelines? These are, of course, very controversial issues. Some countries in their accession protocols have taken up commitments on pipeline transport, like Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. But it doesn't mean that these commitments apply to all the existing WTO members. And then you have also, for instance, import and export restrictions, production quota on petroleum as maintained by OPEC. Are these covered? Are they legal under the GATT? Unclear. You have subsidies. Subsidies are actionable or prohibited in the WTO. But in the renewable energy sector, we often see governmental support programs. To what extent are they justified in the WTO? Um, the WTO was faced with one case on kind of renewable energies, and it really had to engage with, in some call, legal acrobatics to kind of decide that the renewable subsidy in question wasn't a subsidy. So this is very complicated things. But you also have things like, how does WTO law relate to other relevant rules of energy trade and investment regulation, like the Energy Charter Treaty? I will talk about that a little bit later. Um, so it, it, um, the law is applicable, but it really raises a lot of questions and there's lots of uncertainties. And you might say that you can open a Pandora's box with all kinds of um, unresolved issues. Now, we also see that times are changing. As I said, after 1995, a lot of countries acceded to the WTO and they did. And because a lot of these countries were major energy producing and exporting countries, they really did start to make commitments in their protocols. Um, you could see transit commitments, as I said, by Ukraine and Russia and Kazakhstan, and binding of energy duties by Russia and also China on raw materials, and also commitments on dual energy pricing policies, for instance, by Russia and Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> now, these commitments might not be as strong as some of the countries would have wanted them to be, but it just shows that energy is becoming an increasingly important topic in the multilateral trading forum. Now, of course, the WTO also has been faced with a lot of, plagued by a lot of problems, like the standstill of the Doha round. And um, so you do see that, um, as with many other topics in trade, um, a lot of um, solutions are sol uh, sought in plurilateral trade agreements. Um, mega regionals are being negotiated, but you can also see that there are um, EU free trade agreements. And we do also see an evolution or crystallization in, of new energy rules in these types of agreements. Now, what do we see? There's one older one, for instance, the North American Free Trade Agreement, the NAFTA, which was already concluded in 1996. But you see already there a more holistic approach towards energy, where the, you have a special chapter on the trade in energy goods and services together. So they take into account that the energy sector might not always distinguish between the goods and services side of trade, and they try to bundle that in one chapter. Now, you also have two recent and quite innovative EU free trade agreements that are not yet or provisionally enforced. One of them is the EU-Singapore free trade agreement, and the other one is the EU-Ukraine free trade agreement. 
And what we see there, especially in the EU-Singapore free trade agreement, is that it's focused uh, towards non-tariff barriers in trade and investment in renewable energy. So there you see that energy and environment are also bundled and um, try to be negotiated as one. And in the EU-Ukraine FTA, it's more focused towards, towards energy security, export restrictions and security of supply and transport. Um, in the EU FTA, in the EU Ukraine FTA, what's interesting to see is that um, people have the negotiators have taken into account both WTO rules and energy charter treaty rules on energy, and try to bundle them in quite comprehensive obligations. Now, at the moment, also we are in the very controversial transatlantic trade and investment partnership negotiations. Um, what is very interesting there is that we see the EU is actually actively trying to negotiate a chapter on access to energy supplies because the EU really wants to diversify um, its energy supplies and um, yeah, uh, make sure to guarantee its energy security. Um, so this is quite a progressive way of really actively seeking access to energy. Um, well, then there's also, of course, challenges. This is what the regulation stands now. You can also look at the nexus between the World Trade Organization and Energy Charter Treaty rules. Um, the Energy Charter Treaty, as many of you will know, is a treaty that was really a result of the fall of the Iron Curtain and trying to open up energy markets uh, in former Soviet countries or communist countries. Um, but both the WTO and, uh, and the Energy Charter Treaty came into being in the same, uh, around the same time. So WTO uh, was established in 1995 and the Energy Charter Treaty entered into force in 1998. And although the Energy Charter Treaty really has a specialized set of rules of trade and uh, energy trade and investment, you see that they have a relatively small membership and you also see that they have quite significant members withdrawing, like Russia, for instance, withdrew from the treaty in 2009, um, allegedly in connection uh, with an arbitration. Also, re Italy recently withdrew only a year ago, which again brings a whole different set of questions to it. On the other hand, as I said before, the WTO actually has a growing amount of exceeding countries of huge energy players to the organization, but it doesn't have a specialized set of rules. Now, um, it's interesting to see how the treaties relate to one another substantially because they are connected through Article 4 of the Energy Charter Treaty. And those members that are both WTO and Energy Charter Treaty members, um, you could say that both treaties apply, but ECT rules are, should be seen as derogating from WTO rules. And it's also interesting to see that from all, most of the members that joined the Energy Charter Treaty and were not uh, WTO members back in the 90s, have indeed also acceded to the WTO over the years. So you could see that you could say that the, the Energy Charter Treaty was in fact a bit of a stepping stone to a WTO accession. But you can also see that there's a lot of fragmentation with respect to the rules and the applicability of both rules and treaty rules. And there's also overlap in some cases, overlap in substance and procedure, and put uh, possible tension between the two treaties. So really, it's um, more coordination is needed between these two bodies, and you could even think of potential integration uh, at some point, or maybe annexing WTO rules um, to the w uh, uh, ECT rules to the WTO, or you know something like that. Um, I also talked about uh, OPEC practices, restrictive practices of the OPEC cartel. 
now times are changing and the oil price is at an all-time low. But you could say that the OPEC cartel for decades has been a successful cartel. But the problem is that the World Trade Organization doesn't provide, unlike, for instance, internal EU rules, any rules on competition. So uh, cartel practices cannot be caught. So what OPEC does is that it um, decides on a production quota on oil that it extracts. And um, thereby, for a long time, it was able to influence the world price of oil to its favor as a monopolist, you could say. Um, I looked in my thesis into whether um, these practices could be caught under any other um, provisions of the WTO. And one that would come to mind is um, the prohibition of quantitative restrictions in GATT Article 11.1. Um, and I had to look into the law and economics side of um, the rationale of this article and also the way the OPEC cartel functions. Um, and the question was really, are these production quota that OPEC applies, are they quantitative restrictions or can they be quantitative restrictions in, 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 in the sense of that article? And can they be prohibited? Now, my conclusion was that economically they can be. But legally, um, it's more complex because countries just don't want to commit um, to this um, type of practice, to have it covered, to have it too broadly interpreted, what would constitute a quantitative restriction. So the status quo favors OPEC in this sense. Now, uh, I also looked into renewable energy subsidies. And what is interesting there is that in the WTO, we see a system that kind of um, makes renewable energy subsidies quite sensitive to dispute settlement because they are often specific and targeted programs and then they can therefore they can easily more easily fall into the definition of a subsidy in the means of the SCM agreement but fossil fuel subsidies are often uh, general and therefore it's much more difficult to place them under these disciplines so the law as it stands now and you see that also from the type of disputes um, doesn't um, tackle uh, fossil fuel subsidies, but makes it easy to target renewable subsidies. And this can have very unfavorable policy outcomes. So you could say that the subsidy laws as they are now, they, they don't really correct for, for market failures, and this can be problematic. So these are one of the things that definitely um, have to you know, be further elaborated on. Now, the main conclusions are that um, I really think there should be a more uh, balanced approach to um, energy governance, taking into account um, in the interests of not only exporting countries, but also bigger views of sustainable development and climate change. Um, yeah, taking into account interests of all the players. You could do in the WTO context, you could think about a plurilateral um, on energy in the WTO. And that, again, um, raises the question what to do with the Energy Charter Treaty WTO relationship. To see this competition is not beneficial. Um, and so I think you should go towards integration and also towards complementarity in energy governance, making sure that you have a, rules, a set of rules. It doesn't even matter under what organization that really reflect the need of a modern energy governance that covers energy transit, energy trade, energy investment, climate change, and energy security. So that's uh, where we should go. Alternatively, uh, if uh, any um, such developments fail, you could also 
a continued energy re regulation in preferential trade agreements and maybe sector-specific agreements. Um, these are, this is only a small uh, illustration of the issues that uh, deserve further attention. And um, I, one of the things I could definitely mention is um, a pressing issue is the interaction of EU energy policy and WTO rules, illustrated by this EU um, Russian uh, third energy package case in front of the EU dispute settlement, uh, in front of the WTO dispute settlement, and what will happen next. Um, and I think uh, for a long time it has been ignored whether EU energy rules are um, designed with world trade rules in mind and um, we have to really take this into consideration uh, now and in the future. So this concludes my presentation and I hope you found it useful. Thank you. Thank you. That was very good. Um, I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit on the TTIP negotiations because there was quite a brief section on, on that and as you say it's it's a controversial thing at the moment um, I'm not sure if the energy aspect of it is so controversial but the idea that there is a much more progressive policy there and this idea of diversification, really seeking better security of supply for for Europe. Um, that's that's something I'd wonder if you could speak a little bit more about. Right. So um, this is in many ways rather progressive because um, in general, um, WTO or international trade law is seen as facilitating access to markets, but not necessarily access to supplies. And this again connects to Article 11.1 and quantitative restrictions versus production quotas. Um, now, you could say that what the EU is trying to do now is progressive in the sense that it's really trying to secure access to energy supplies, um, meaning that they would really want to open up um, LNG, uh, LNG trade with uh, the US and um, get some guarantees on the US side uh, from this. Um, as far as I know, this is quite problematic, and I think um, the U.S. is not very enthusiastic about this. But the interesting thing is that before these LNG supplies were discovered, the U.S. was trying to actually negotiate exactly the same in NAFTA in the 90s with Mexico, uh, who was, again, not very willing to make concessions on this. Um, so in the end, you have in NAFTA this energy chapter, but um, Mexico made a lot of reservations to that. And um, so you could see how politics or, you know, these kind of discoveries can really change a country's policy around. And the same goes towards um, dual pricing practices, which basically means that, especially for instance, the countries of the Gulf, but also Russia, um, often sell their energy abroad at a more expensive rate than they sell domestically. Now, the EU and the US have often... Um, over the decades, been quite opposed to such practices, saying that they were discriminatory. Um, but uh, since the U.S. discovered its LNG supplies, you also see a turnaround in, in the policy um, there. So um, I think it's wise for the EU to try and diversify its energy resources. And uh, since it seems that we are venturing into a natural gas era, uh, era, um, it's a, it's um, logical that. Um, we are trying to go there. Um, whether or not it will be su successful or to what extent um, the EU can really get um, 
hard or tough guarantees there uh, it's, remains to be seen. Yeah. One of the other issues that maybe you can expand on a bit more, just let me know if it's not really something that you covered on, is, of course, one of the big challenges the energy sector as a whole is facing is the press to decarbonize. And you mentioned in your conclusions that this is like we should have more of a consideration in the legislation that we have incentives and legal incentives, not just economic incentives that really help in terms of climate and this sorts of stuff. I wonder, could was there anything you, you specifically talked about in terms of this push for decarbonization of, of the industry? Yes, well, so as I said, the problem, one of the problems of the WTO uh, rules is that they don't really take into account uh, market failures. And one of these market failures is indeed, as I would say, um, the need to take account for negative environmental externalities, um, such as climate change. So um, one of the things that I think is problematic is especially the current state of the subsidy rules of the WTO. Why? Um, well, as I said, um, renewable energy subsidies, which are much needed to for de decarbonizing the, the energy sector, um, are an easy target for dispute settlement in the WTO. Now, until the mid-2000s, there was an article in the subsidies agreement that allowed for environmental exceptions to subsidies. So it really allowed... Uh, these kinds of subsidies to exist without uh, targeting them. So um, they could contribute to the wider environmental objective. But the problem is that this uh, article has expired and um, countries or WTO members have been unable to negotiate an extension of this article. So um, I would say that this is one of the, the examples that really shows that um, we have to overcome these things and think in larger terms of um, decarbonization and, and the tools and the law that we have now and how the law allows or disallows those kinds of policy objectives.